several of you were out at our uh, National Rock Day of Prayer. If you were out there, let me see your hands. Let me see your hands if you were out there. We had a whole crew out there of our church that were out there praying and gathered with a few hundred people, all the pastors of the Castle Rock area and some even beyond that. It's really a neat thing to see, a great experience. One of the things that they mentioned at the prayer time is last year, during the Castle Rock Day of Prayer, they were playing, praying for seeds and uh, in his transplant situation and great to have Ian McHale in the service. The answer to that prayer that uh, this time last year, we weren't sure quite how that was going to end. And of course, Keith was, was there praying with us yesterday, and he was up playing with us, so we're grateful that God answered prayers. If you ever doubt that, it usually is because you have a prayer that you've been praying, and God seems silent, like he isn't answering. And at some point along the way, you begin to think, you know, is anybody listening? Or maybe you think, what I've thought over the last few weeks, this shouldn't be that hard. How many of you have thought that over the last, I don't know, month? Let me see your hands. This shouldn't be that hard. And so, I don't know what you've thought that about. We won't actually answer that, because your spouse is sitting next to you. So, um, if you thought that about your marriage, you thought that about raising kids, or maybe you thought that about trying to get an oil change. I don't know what it is you thought that about. This shouldn't be that hard. I don't know, why is it this hard? Well, we thought that throughout the summer in our house, we have a pretty new house. We didn't. We moved into it about two years old, and plantings around, and so those things are new. And we have a, a little lonely tree in our front yard that looked great in the spring, and we thought this was going to go well. And somewhere in the middle of the summer, these leaves started to turn brown, and we thought, you know, it's not falling yet. This can't be good. So this tree is just in front of our very eyes. I mean, we were watering it. It's on the drip line. You know, uh, I don't know why. Usually plants come to our house to die, but um, this, of course, should have been doing just fine, but it turned fall in July. And this tree just died right in front of us. We had no idea what was going on. So we're at the nursery, and we're getting some new trees, and we're getting them planted, and the lady begins to explain to us. She says, now, you have to plant these trees? Yeah. And so she hands us a stack of papers. I don't know, yay thick. And it seemed that big, lots of tiny print. And it was all of the instructions about how to take care of this tree. And I thought, it shouldn't be this hard. We just, just plant them, right? No, no, you have to water them. Oh, yeah, we get them. You're on your farm. No, no, no. You have to hand water them. How much? Well, you have to measure the circumference of the tree, and then you measure the, the amount of water. I'm just going, measure the amount of water. I turn my hose on. I've got to measure the amount of water. And then she explained that because of where we are in Castle Rock, that some deer may come along and rub their antlers on the bark, and this is bad for a young tree. Okay, we get it. What do we do for that? We have to cover it. How do you cover it? She explained how to cover it. And then you have to, during part of the season, uncover it and then recover it again. And then we figured out what happened to our tree in our front yard in the winter. Maybe you don't know this. This is a little education. This is free. You can forget it or remember it. It doesn't matter. But in the winter, when it snows, this elevation, the snow can, ref- can reflect the sun onto the bark of your tree and split it. And you won't even know it split until July. And your leaves will turn brown. And I said, what do you do about that? You got to install mirrors or I don't know. And so she explained how to solve that problem. And I'm like, oh, this, it shouldn't be what? It shouldn't be this hard. I just want to grow some things. Why is it this difficult to keep things alive? And then, of course, as I look at my relationships, I look at my trees, 
I'm thinking about everything that we're trying to do and accomplish here at the church. And I realized my perspective about how it shouldn't be this hard is very short-sighted. Apparently, if you read scripture, it's clear. And if you want to grow anything, if you want to grow your generosity, if you want to grow charity and goodwill between you and another person, if you want to grow the depth of relationship between you and somebody you care about, apparently, it is that hard. And it always has been. Fallen nature, thorns and thistles, they're your call. This is the feeling I think that Paul had when he watched the church at Corinth. Brand new church, baby church, new Christians. He had been there. Oh, come on, this isn't just your average church planner. This is the Apostle Paul, right? The premier church planner. He goes and he plants and he teaches Jesus and he helps them understand what it means to be redeemed. And then he merely walks away and probably minutes after the church begins to disintegrate. And so he writes them a couple letters, probably four letters. We have two of them. And so if you're new to Casalos, or you've been gone for a bit, or vacationing back from, from the summer stuff, that we're walking through first and second Corinthians over the fall, and we're calling it Messy Church, because whenever you have people, apparently this follows. Whenever you have people in relationships trying to love and trying to find their way, this follows. And so we started a few weeks ago, but we're really just kind of getting rolling. And we've talked about this moment where Paul begins to identify the first problem in the church. He's right in the first chapter. And he says this, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are, what? Quarrels among you. So we talked about this last week and kind of talked about what it means. And how many of you uh, have a tendency uh, to engage in quarrels? Raise your hands. Raise them up high. Okay. This is what my mom said to me when I was growing up. I was probably middle school. She said, you just like to argue. And I said, I do not. And so some of you, like me, have a lack of self-awareness about your desire to engage in quarrels. Because it doesn't feel like we want to argue, does it? I mean, who wants to have a bad time or a full, tense argument? Nobody wants that. But it's hard to admit that you're wrong or that you need something or that there's something for you to learn. And so quarrels find their way into the most peaceful of relationships. And so as Paul points this problem out, he actually spends the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians talking about this issue. And he gives them a solution real early. We gave it to you last week. Here it is. We gave you some points here, one, two, and three, to break it out for you. He says, look, you're, you're fighting, you're arguing. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to behave. Here's the what that I want you to engage in. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, say the words of yell with me, ready? Agree with one another in what you say, and then he says, and that there be, say it with me, no divisions among you, and then he says, but that you be, one more, perfectly united in mind and thought. And when you read this, it's obvious, not your thinking, if you're paying attention to your experiences in church or your other relationships or just a friendship or two, it's impossible. How could anybody live that way? How could any group live that way? You don't even agree with yourself most of the time. And so how can this actually work? So he spends 
four chapters explaining that and digging into it. We said last week the step one is this, just find the common ground. Find the common ground. Don't focus on the differences. Don't uh, weatherproof, you know, find the spots that need attention. Ignore all that stuff. They'll come up soon enough. If you want to find some peace in your relationship, if you want to grow in a way that's helpful, find the common ground in a relationship. And with that ground, just like when you're planting a tree, you till up the soil, water it, do what you need to do, and then watch the common ground begin to grow. Find it. So he says, there's quarrels among you that we know what's up. Now, like I said, Paul spends the first four chapters of the entire letter talking about this issue. And he takes this issue and he turns it this way and he turns it that way. And he talks about the what, how you're supposed to behave, how it's supposed to work in your life. And then he talks about the reason why and the gospel and how the gospel of Jesus, which is the death, the burial, the resurrection, that's the gospel, which means that I can have new life. And I can be somebody different tomorrow than I am today. It's the power of the gospel. So if that's true, the gospel teaches me how to set myself aside and find common ground. And then for the next three chapters, Paul begins to understand clearly with the Corinthian people that, it, okay, look, I know how to behave. I told them what to do, but they're going to fail. They understand, understand how it relates to the gospel and the gospel message, and that's important. Gives them that understanding, just a big picture of why they need to behave this way. But I need to get to the root cause of what's wrong. And if you don't get to the root cause of something, well, we have weeds in our yard, and so do you. Unless you get them up by the roots, what happens? They always come back. And so Paul now is going to spend some time digging at the root cause of the quarrels among you. So as we said, what we said, people in Corinth were fighting and arguing over leaders that they liked to follow, people that they found to be important in their life, but they weren't just showing preference over certain leaders. What they were saying is, I like this leader so much, I think your leader is wrong. And so what began to seep out in every relationship was this sense of self-importance. And pride. And he talks about the, the same issues again a couple chapters later. Chapter 3, he says this Not only are you quarreling with one another, let's get a little more specific. You are jealous of one another and you quarrel with one another. Doesn't that prove that you are what? Controlled by your sinful nature. Now, apparently, when you became a follower of Jesus, you surrendered your life to him, something incredible happened. You became one of his, one of his children. But you also brought with you into that moment every hang-up, every sin, every attitude, every failure, every misperception of who God is into the very next moment. In other words, God didn't change you to become more like Jesus in one instant. Do you have some evidence in your life to support that? Paul said it this way to the church in Galatians. Are you surprised that some of us still sin? Are you surprised that some of us still struggle with sin? 
mess of course is what's happening in the Corinthian church. Some of them, all of them, are still struggling with sin. Like at one point, Paul describes it this way, and he says this, Are you not acting like mere humans? That's a great phrase, isn't it? Aren't you acting like a person? Aren't you acting like a person that has issues and a past and a struggle? Maybe you felt some of that struggle in some of your interactions this week. Maybe you've decided that you're going to be more patient or more kind or more loving or more gracious. Or maybe somewhere along the way you decided that you're going to be less reactionary, less suspicious, less jealous, more loving. And then something happens. It catches you from the side. You didn't expect this comment at work. Something from your family, your kids knows how to push your buttons because they, you know, they know exactly where they are. And whatever occurs, something happens in your life, and then you find yourself behaving in a way that you thought Jesus had already taken care of. And your reaction tells the truth, doesn't it? You're still impatient. You're still struggling. You're still jealous. You're still prideful. You're still insecure. All kinds of symptoms point to this being true. You're still acting like mere humans. And we can call the symptoms a variety of things, but let's list a few. Maybe you deal with jealousy. Walk into somebody's house. Go to an open house. Go to an event or a party and you find yourself coveting. You would never say it's coveting. I mean, goodness sakes, that's why the Ten Commandments, right? So we all know better than that that your feeling is, I want what they have. I feel like God doesn't love me as much, or I feel slighted, or so on. Maybe you're easily offended. Let's just take a poll. Anybody in the room easily offended? Well, I'll try to offend you. Don't make me prove my point. Maybe you're prideful, quick to argue, insecure, relationally needy. Ever meet anybody that's resume focused? How many of you have met someone that's resume focused? Three minutes into the discussion, you know where they went to college, who they went to college with, what their grades were, and their pedigree follows. Relationally distant, relationally needy. Two sides of the same coin. So make a little mental list for yourself. Which of these things do you struggle with? Maybe a better list would be, oh, ponder the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Which one of these things do we find ourselves in short supply of? And Paul looks at the Corinthian church and he says, Oh my goodness, are you not acting like mere humans? But then in just chapter two before this, he says this goodness, the most profound nature of truth. He says it in this. But we have the mind of Christ. Say it with me. But we have the mind of Christ. He says this right after he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and says, no one knows, no one can fathom the blessings that God has prepared for you and me. And then he says, do we have the mind of Christ? In other words, some days we have our mere humans. Some days we have the mind of Christ. It's that moment when somebody wrongs you, 
instead of responding with jealousy or hate or vindictiveness, you respond with love. You've done that before. It's that moment when everybody around you is losing their patience and you have a sense of calm and peace and you're ready to wait longer. It's that moment when somebody succeeds and you're happy for their success and you don't compare your own failure. That moment, it exists because you have the mind of Christ. The promise of God is that you have within you the Holy Spirit that wants what God wants. And yet this side of heaven, you'll struggle a bit with wanting what you want. On Tuesday, God wins. Wednesday, you have your own way. And this is the path that we walk. And this is why you think on certain days, why is this so hard? How can this be so difficult? It shouldn't be. And so this this path between these two realities is a real one. It's one that you and I walk every day. This path is a very tough path. This, are you not acting like mere humans? all the way to the reality that we do have the mind of Christ. And most of us live somewhere along that yellow arrow most every day. This is why we want you to engage in relationships with each other. This is why we want you to pick up scripture and read it. And I know, I know, it's confusing, it's hard, it doesn't make any sense, Paul talks in circles. I don't understand what it says, I guess I'll pick it up again. I gave up last week, and Bill's going to keep saying this, if we're going to come to church here, you might as well read. So I don't feel guilty when he mentions it. And so this path that we're going to walk on together as a body is that path. The distance between, are you not acting like mere humans? And when we have the mind of Christ, it is, in fact, the narrowest road we can walk. And it's uphill. It's difficult. And it requires all of us to start over every day. For some of us, every hour. It's a tough thing to climb. And most of the time we think it shouldn't be this hard. Last uh, fall, we went uh, to the theater, me and Donna, and uh, I think our both boys were with us, or at least one of them was, and we saw a movie, we saw a documentary, it's called Free Solo. It's about the story of Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold is probably, especially after June of 2017, the most accomplished rock climber in the world. And the story is about his climb of El Capitan. Now, it's named Free Solo because that describes the kind of climb that he engaged in. Solo, you can guess what that means, right? He climbed it alone. He didn't do it with anybody else. The free part is a little more interesting. Free means that he climbed with no equipment and no ropes. Nothing to catch him. Nothing at all. The only thing he had on his person was a little bag attached to his belt that had chalk in it. That was it. He worked on this climb for decades. So if you've been to Yosemite National Park, who's been to Yosemite, you've seen El Capitan. 
when you come into the valley floor, it's the only thing you can see. It's this incredible monolithic pile of granite. It's 3,000 feet tall. Unbelievable to watch and to see it. While we were there, Donald said we should go. We should hike up and, and touch the, the base of it. And we did. We went the hard way. Another story for another time. But as we went there, we, we just got closer and closer, and it just loomed and loomed and loomed. So the documentary, Free Solo, is about Alex's climb of El Capitan. This is the face of El Capitan. And this is called Freerider. This is the path that he took. Now, there are 33 pitches on El Capitan. What that means is a pitch is a, a portion of the climb that is separated from the other portions based on technicality or based on the structure of the rock. And so these 33 pitches are all at different varying degrees of difficulty or, for most climbers, complete impossibility. As he's climbing this stretch, this picture shows about four or five different pitches and the difficulty of them. And it's the wrongest picture because they're particularly uh, difficult and painful to do. Let me give you a little context for how tall El Capitan is. So the largest building in the world is in Dubai. It's been that since 2008. It's 2,700 feet tall, including the antennas. If you put this building at the base of El Capitan, you would still have 300 more feet to go before you got to the top. And so his hope, his goal, is to climb El Capitan from the bottom to the top, free solo, no ropes, nobody with him. Unbelievable. So you're putting the pieces together if you haven't seen the movie or heard the story. And pretty much once he gets past 50 or 60 feet, certainly at 100, 150 feet, any mistake at that point means what? Means death. That's right. Here's what amazed me. Not only just the film tenacity we take to do something like this. When we imagine what was the movie going to be like, we follow climbing and love to think about climbing here in Colorado. We study and we read about climbers as well. And so as I think about the people that climbed with him and many times, but not this trip, of course, Tommy Caldwell, many others that have climbed El Capitan and all the different peaks in the world. I just imagine that they come up to a peak like this and begin climbing. They, they've worked on their skills, right? They've worked on their ability to grip and their understanding of how rocks work and where they can go. I didn't understand that every inch of this climb had been pre-planned and practiced by Alex Honnold and many others who tried to do this. In other words, there's not a piece of that climb one inch in granite that hasn't been touched by him hundreds of times already by the time he got ready to climb this. The most difficult part is about halfway up is called the boulder problem. And it's unbelievable what has to happen at that moment. Just take a deep breath. It's okay. He's alive. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil the end for you. You ought to watch it. It's unbelievable. Of course, he's practicing that, that pitch with ropes before he goes up without ropes. So in June of 2017, on a very dark early morning, he left and his camera crew, he was going and began his climb. Unbelievable. Un 
unbelievable to think how difficult and how painful and if you caught some of that from, for about I don't know 10 15 seconds he's holding up his entire body weight with his thumb there's one place where he puts all of his weight on one toe just to make the pot and all the while I'm not sure if he's thinking what we've been thinking about our weeks it shouldn't be this hard course, he signed up for it and this is what he does now granted he's unique in psychology and have a payday with him right but what we're attempting to do while it's not as deadly much hangs in the balance and while some days it doesn't feel as hard I guarantee you that most of us have felt a level of frustration about life or our lack of holiness or the depravity of a relationship or how much of a failure we feel in the face of just normal everyday human problems that we feel like we're climbing you know Captain Pan and it's true that's how we feel when Paul looks at this church in the first century church of Corinth he knows that the problem is rooted in some significant issues in their life in fact what he knows is that every human interaction carries with it these same experiences that pride and jealousy and insecurity gets in the way that our desire to be significant or important overshadows our understanding of who God is that we feel we bring so many shortcomings to the table and what he does over these few chapters is he begins to pick apart why these issues surface over and over and over again so for the next two weeks we'll talk about how that works today I want you to grasp this idea that some days you're going to act like a mere human and some days you will soar and you will have the mind of Christ and somewhere in between you will find yourself struggling and discouraged so this is my hope for you and I hope for us as we prepare to take communion together that God welcomes you he welcomes you to this table he welcomes you with bruised hands and defeated selves he welcomes you with broken relationships and impure motives he welcomes your bruised ego and he welcomes you in humility and as he does so he says come come fellowship with me we pray with you Lord, our hope and our prayer right now is that as we think about our lives and relationships and the way that you lead us, the way you guide us, we think about the difficulty of what it's like to love each other well, to not squabble and fight and quarrel, and how many times we find ourselves on the failing end of that proposition this week. So, Lord, we acknowledge that many times we've thought this week it shouldn't be that hard. So forgive us of that. Fresh your son went to the cross and did so willingly, enduring unimaginable pain, so that we would know love, so that we would see that death does not have the final say, but that victory, in fact, can be ours. 
someone would redeclare this truth with Paul that is not coming from the first century. We have the mind of Christ. So Lord, we're grateful that you welcome us to this table.